Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. We're here, Brendan with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 146, Friday, July the 24th of 2020. And Mark, somebody asked me the other day, or said to me, it was, well, it was one of my brothers actually, he said, maybe you should think about doing a podcast one day <laughs> about your um, work and um, the sorts of animals you see. And my reply to him was, we're up to episode 145, or 146 now, and we have listeners in 109 countries. He hasn't spoken to me since. <laughs> <laughs> so, but looking at it that way, that summary, I was quite proud of it, and I'm still am proud of this podcast, and um, and I'm very proud of our listeners, especially the ones who stick with us, Mark. I love I proud? love the sense of connection, Brendan. I I, you know, we started this thinking that it would um it would just be you and I slightly expanding our weekly conversation to maybe one or two other people, um, but um. But yeah, the, the sense of connection with a whole bunch of people who listen to us is um is a, a very gratifying sensation. Sticky, Mark. We're very sticky. <laughs> That's what I think it is. And take that the right way, not the wrong way, Mark. Take that. Well, what have you been up to this week? It's been a bit of a miserable week here in Melbourne. And for those of you overseas, um our lockdown continues and we have now gone, as we were discussing pre-recording, into a phase where we have to, masks are compulsory here in Melbourne region, Mark, from, well, from 12.01am uh, in a couple of days from now. So what do you think of that? Um, I think, I think it's a good thing. I think um, that... Uh, um, even though masks are no panacea, they're no perfect cure, and um, and we do have to take into account, you know, social distancing and um, avoiding uh, places, washing your hands, something as simple as washing your hands. And I, I always uh, have a smile at our staff uh, wandering around with antiseptic wipes, wiping down doorknobs, and um, but I think all those things taken together are markedly. Uh, have a, a marked likelihood of um, limiting the spread, and um, and I think we're still in a situation where we can hope to uh, reach parity with New Zealand and and uh, eliminate the virus from our country and have a little um, Australian New Zealand bubble happening. But um, but yeah, I don't think it's any problem putting a mask on, Brendan. Though I've got to tell you one thing: I've been uh, so it was interesting. Uh, I was reading some. Articles about wearing masks and masks, and one of the things they said that worked really well to make it happen was to normalise them. That the more people that wore them, the more easy it was to get other people to wear them. And I'm reminded of the story of a bloke who walked into a post office with a big. The post office had a big sign saying "Must wear mask to come inside." He didn't wear a mask. Got inside, saw the queue had four people in it that were wearing masks, so wandered back out to his car and got his mask. So the pressure, peer group pressure is much more important than signs or 
laws or whatever, I think. So I do try to wear them, Brendan, but I actually do find them a little bit hard to breathe in at times. I've got to catch my – maybe that's just because I get excited to tell the story <laughs> of the case. And But in the consult, I do actually get a little bit <sighs> – I can't quite get the air in quick enough to get the story out. Yes. Well, I'll tell you a funny story of a, a client who came in today and uh, we have a we have a big sign on the door um, that's not not just printed off at our clinic. It says "Stop, do not enter," big in, in big red red stop sign letters um, that's on the actual clinic front door. And then there's an A-frame little advertising, you know, A-frame um, sitting next to that, just in front of the door um, on on the outside of the clinic that um, has the clinic name and it also has the same um, thing on there saying stop, you know, do not enter phone and it has the clinic number there. And I was there um, this evening in one of the early after early afternoon consults and um, we could hear the front doorbell open and there is some the, the next consultation. Um, man coming in with his dog just and he'd, and he'd picked up the A-frame, moved it to the side. <laughs> pushed open the door and came in with his dog. Um, and the, the curious thing was he had a mask on um, and yet when um, the nurse on duty sort of kindly, um, gently yelled at him and said, go outside and um, we'll be with you shortly, we're seeing the previous patient. Um, and then she had a chat to him once we'd fixed up the previous client and patient and um, that one was back in its car. Um, he... Um, then just went on to ramble about how he didn't believe this virus thing was um, um, a problem and wasn't killing people, and um, yet he was wearing a mask. So I become befuddled, Mark, with some of these, um, the way people react to things. But um, I think the longer things go on for, the the more people get a little bit stressed and a little bit um, anxious and a little bit um, toey, don't they? Toey, that's right. That's exactly how they get a little bit toey. So we should jump into things and and stop um, yakety yakiting. Um, we, we, <laughs> you, you were going to answer an email from our, our long term um, serial emailer Nick, um, and he we love a question. Mark. We love Nick's emails, and I look forward to them. And this one um, is was very interesting. The the um, now I'm just trying to bring it up. Brendan, it's about um, tarantulas, um, and um, and uh, the species that are involved are different here in Australia compared to uh, in the United States and other parts of the world, um, and our ones tend to not do exactly the same thing as uh, ones over in other parts of the world. So um, many of the traditional tarantulas will. Um, stridulate they will rub various parts of their body uh, when they're stressed to create i've little... seen you do that before mark and it's not a pretty sight <laughs> when they get stressed <laughs> under the same we circumstances have sh- we have sh- we have shared a few hotel rooms in the past when you could go to hotels and you stridulating <laughs> is um it, it, my eyes are watering while I think about it now, Mark. Anyway, go on. And it produces a, a, a little vibrating noise um, that uh, that um, uh, 
helps to provide protection, you know, scares a potential predator. But um, spiders that are tarantulas that are continually stridulating, that do it excessively, will break the little hairs with 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 which they produce the noise, and so they end up with um, a quite rightly described um, alopecia over patches of their body. Um, and it is a definite indication that those animals are a little bit uh, uh, stressed in their environment. So um, trying... And I'll just I'll just read out his entire oh, email, Mark. You may not have it in front of you. Um, Hi, gurus. Do you have any tips on tarantula care? I don't see very many, but the one that I have seen was doing pretty well with only a small region of alopecia, in um, quotation marks, on the ventral abdomen following a molt. Thanks, Nick. Succinct, punchier than I am. But Nick's, <laughs> but Nick is uh, right to observe that um, the alopecia is not normal. They do often appear after a molt because um, the spiders, obviously, the chitin is soft immediately after a molt. So um, even uh, relatively minor stresses will lead to damage. Um, so I think it's really important to um, provide them with adequate hides, make sure that uh, vibrations are kept to a minimum and humidity, Brendan, the humidity gradient in there. These large spiders, both the Australian ones and the, uh, the South American and um, Southeast Asian ones, they are not good at maintaining um, their own internal humidity. They dry out very easily and um, maintaining a humidity gradient in their enclosure is really, really important. Yes, and it's an excellent observation there by Nick, isn't it? And it's a, it's a really interesting condition, isn't it? And again, I've learnt a word. This week, Mark, and what is that word again? Stridulating. Stridulating, yes. Um, and I don't, yes. Yes, stridulating. Well, thank you, Nick, and keep the questions coming in. Um, I'm going to jump to my first news story, Mark, and my only news story, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good news story, this one, Mark. LA, Los Angeles in the, in the US of A, bans exotic animals from house parties. It's one of those things you think, you know, could only ever happen in LA, wouldn't it? The Los Angeles City Council voted on Tuesday, this was fairly recently, to ban the use of, not this Tuesday, uh, to ban the use of exotic animals for entertainment purposes, effectively putting an end to traditional circuses and similar ventures within the city. The issue, the issue. I, I love this quote from Councilman David. Um, the issue of wild exotic animals being abused came to my doorsteps four years ago, when a baby giraffe and an elephant were being marched up at Upper Hollywood Hills um, to a house party. You can only imagine it happening in um, LA. Could, couldn't you, Mark? Um, it is time that the city of Los Angeles makes absolutely clear that this abuse of animals is shameful and we will not stand for it. And good on them. Um, the ban was passed by a vote of 14 to 0. Also prohibits people from riding wild and exotic animals or using them for entertainment um, purposes, whether a fee is charged or not. And they made a note that the ban does not apply to typically domesticated animals such as, ho such as horses. 
So good on them. And they even mentioned some of the other exotic or unusual animals that have been used um, and taken to these house parties. So elephants, giraffes, lions, bears, tigers, elephants, monkeys, yeah, other wild animals that have been in circus acts, etc. But um, it's I love fantastic. I love the alliteration at the end of that um, article. They have using petrified penguins, bewildered big cats and other wild animals as party props sentences sensitive animals to miserable deprived lives uh, that's that's some bloody good language there yes but it's good news isn't it mark it is a good news story but hey the world has gone mad hasn't it um, when although it would have been a probably a pretty damn good party that one where you could have um where they had the um baby giraffe at it don't you reckon um yes no maybe not um, so that's my new story, Mark. You've got a, a um, well, a birdie story as usual. Um, what if surprise, got? surprise? Um, I have a an article which talks about um, the the uh, cytosine beacon feather disease virus. Uh, the title is a fatal virus that makes bird feathers fall out could drive extinctions, and uh, essentially, um, I, I think what's happened here is that uh, that this is a little bit of a cry out to the Australian government. The Australian government in 2005 recognised this, the uh, uh, cytosine circa virus, the virus that causes this problem, as an um, extinction threat to a number of um, uh, Australian parrot species. But um, 15 years later, there's still no vaccine. And um, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr Shane Radell, uh, Charles Sturt University, um, he's been involved uh, in the science of developing the vaccine. And as far as I understand it, it's bucks, not uh, um, impossibility. You know, they just don't have enough money to make the vaccine um, rather than um, it be a technically impossible thing to do. Um, and the awful thing, Brendan, is that um, that the virus is everywhere in the Australian bush. Um, and the problem with that is that our common birds, uh, like um, the reservoir species, like rosellas and maybe to a lesser extent the cockatoos, they can cope with a relatively small proportion of birds coming down with the virus and dying when the large majority of birds in those populations don't. But the critically endangered species, particularly the orange-bellied parrot and uh, our, um, the swift parrot, um, those birds are, you know, a, a major bump to their, you know, there's, what, 48 wild um, uh, orange-bellied parrots. There's um, maybe less than 300 wild swift parrots. Um, these birds are only need one little bump and they're gone. So um, this, to have this virus for 15 years and still not have made a significant dent in the effect that it has on our wild birds is a bit of a downer. I'm sorry to follow your uplifting story with um, uh, <laughs> one, one less, one less uh, um, smile engendering, but it's an important story nonetheless, Brendan. Yes, What's your thoughts? Do you think they will, somebody will eventually be able to develop a vaccine, for instance, or my, not? My limited understanding is that a vaccine would is technically feasible. Um, you know, it, it 
then so I, I don't think there's any doubt that that will happen. It'll become difficult to, you know, what do they do then? Engineer it into a virus? How how do they spread it through the wild population? Um, yes, uh, it's pretty pretty clear that I think I, I would I guess that most wild I, I, I read somewhere that most if not all the wild orange-bellied parrots are affected by the virus at the moment, so vaccinating them might not be that much use. But um, certainly uh, catching a few of the swift parrots and, and vaccinating those guys could be a useful thing, developing a, a population that has some immunity to the virus. Um, yeah, I, I, I think they will. My short answer is given enough dollars, they will, and they will get enough dollars at some point. Are they going to get the dollars from Wham? Then, Mark, is the question. <laughs> I was trying to end that topic on a like uplifting. You know, that it is going to happen. I don't know where they're going to get. Uh, this is my my thoughts on that at the moment. That we're going through a phase where um, where we're a little bit utilitarian, where money is being funneled away from these things because it has no immediate use. Um, I think we're going to see a pendulum swing over the next decade, Brendan, and I think um, there will be a conscious decision made in society to direct dollars to things like this. So I'm hopeful that uh, that um, that uh, Shane will get a bucket of money and he'll make a vaccine. That's a positive finish to the story, Mark. Thank you very much for that. Well, let's jump I, had in. Work, I had to work at it. <laughs> yeah. Let's jump into our main topic this week, which is a bit of a general one, but I think it's a really important one because we often cover these sort of general introduction, introductions or introductory talks or topics, Mark. And, and, and the reason why I decided to go with this one, it was one of the presentations that was – in the online Australian Veterinary Association Vet Fest that's been going online um, in the evenings for the last two or three weeks, Mark, and it was by um, Dr. Catherine, um, and we'll put a link to that in our podcast. And the topic, well, her her summary was fantastic, and I, I was um, lucky enough to be there helping chair that session, and um, her topic was avian husbandry for general practitioners mark and i thought it would be good good one to pick through some of the thoughts that catherine had and you can add your own um or we can add our own comments some um, and, and and little additions um to it mark um so yeah let's jump into it and um it summarizes a lot of the excellent um well excellent things we usually talk to that Client we haven't seen before for with that first um, little birdie that comes to us, isn't it, Mark? Where we give we give the handouts, but we go through all those really important basics with with husbandry, including the one that I often mention fairly early on in the conversation with clients is the setup and the enclosure design and specifications. Um, so, do you want to tackle that, Mark? I, do, I, I just wanted before we tackle it, I was just going to uh, say what an outstanding summary it is. I, I think. Um, uh, uh, Catherine's done an awesome job of drawing together a whole lot of information into a, um, a lovely succinct article, and that the introduction points out that there are more um, uh, pet birds in Australia at the moment um, than there are uh, either dogs or cats. Um, 5.6 million pet birds in Australia compared to 5.1 million dogs and 3.8 million cats. So um, many GP vets will get to 
uh, use these facts, um, and um, and I think it's excellent for us to spread it round and uh, uh, give Catherine credit for drawing it all into such a unique document. Um, and she does start with the enclosure specifications, um, and I do like the general trend in her discussion of making sure that the bird has enough space. Too many birds come to us in. Uh, tiny little cages with uh, dowel perches and nothing more than an, uh, a water bowl and a food bowl, and um, and it's just not enough. Um, and they definitely need uh, more space to conduct physical exercise and that and uh, have uh, um, uh, environmental enrichment. Um, and they definitely need, um, you know, um, something more than a bit of dowel to perch on. Um, and I think the take-home message of talking about the enclosure um, is uh, flight, that whatever you do, you need to allow I, – I, it's one of my soapbox things at work when I do these new bird client um, consults, that I want the bird to fly. Not only is it um, – is absolutely critical to a bird's sense of well-being and being able to escape. It's like the birds get out of jail-free car. Whatever happens, I can fly away. Um, but also, it uh, it's excellent exercise. It um, nothing gets the heart pumping as fast as trying to stay completely off the ground. Um, and uh, perfusion and ventilation are markedly better in a bird that can fly, Brendan. So um, whether the whether in the cage or um, the time out of the cage, making opportunity for the bird to exercise those wings is um, probably the highlight of the first page of Catherine's paper. Yes, and I love how she makes a couple of comparisons and I do these sorts of things with my clients as well all the time. She mentions that a bird that lives the majority of its life in a, cage, in a small cage with just a little dowel perch can be likened to a dog tied up to a tree devoid of attention and social interaction with minimal mental stimulation and lack of physical exercise so i always like to well as i say in your exams compare and contrast mark <laughs> um and and try and get the point across with with with, with little stories and and comparisons that the Hopefully, then a little you see a little light go on um, behind the mask of your client, um, and they realise, hey, yeah, I need to have a bigger enclosure for my bird. What's and it's a good point thing? too that um, that yeah. the size of that enclosure is best measured side to side rather than up and down. Uh, a bird will, you know, a relatively small but tall enclosure will trap the bird because it will try and get up high, um, the bird can't use the full dimension. Um, and so when we are talking about size, we are talking about, you know, that side-to-side -side distance, which needs to be as big as possible so uh, the birds can um, generate uh, an opportunity to fly. Yes, and the, the, a couple of other comments you make regarding the enclosure set up there, Mark, and I'd like your thoughts on it as well, is, is um, mentioning the, the enclosure, the wire, um, um, and, the, and, and what to do to avoid any issues with the wire, and also the cleaning or the disinfection of the enclosure, Mark. Well, of course, um, one of the most common things that we see, uh, and probably less today because at least most people who keep birds are aware of it, um, but um, uh, the zinc that's uh, often used to uh, 
um, protect metal, the wire from rusting, um, it is poisonous to the birds. And so very many birds who uh, would, um, you know, play around with their galvanised food dish or um, uh, who would chew flakes off the wire, um, they will end up really, really sick. And so it's best to choose um, powder-coated or stainless steel um, uh, um, types of cages, the wire, the barriers, the bars in the cages, rather than um, those uh, relatively inexpensive zinc-coated, zinc-galvanised uh, um, type cages, which are almost invariably going to cause uh, heavy metal intoxication problems with the birds. I remember in the old days, Mark, I think it might have been the one of the very few lectures I had on basic bird care when I went through university, my lecturer said you need to age the cage. Um, you need to put it out in the, the rain and the sun and, and leave it for um, two or three months to age it and that will decrease the chance of any any um, problems with the ingestion and, and toxicosis um, that might occur. Do you think that's Valid. It is a valid, um, and the logic behind that is that the aging doesn't change the, you know, the the coating of zinc on the wire is still the same, um, but there is just a number of pieces, particularly on wire, less so on the sort of bars of a smaller cage, but in wire there will be little flakes, and the birds. The zinc tastes nice to them. They will find these. Um, and a little bit of weathering. Um, we often talk to people about scrubbing the wire or even exposing it to a little bit of vinegar, which um, reacts and allows those flakes to fall off and not be available to the bird. Um, so, yep, I agree entirely with your uh, lecturer uh, that um, exposure of the wire to weather or other um uh, wearing characteristics makes uh, heavy metal intoxication far less risky. Good. And cleaning mark products and substrate. Talk about substrates. What's your recommendations as a, as a safe and environmentally enriching substrate for the typical aviary? Well, I'm always careful about about um, organic substrates because um, we do really worry, uh, particularly with many of our uh, parrots, about the risks associated with aspergillosis. And so an organic um, substrate uh, um, that uh, is exposed to a little bit of water and maybe some bird droppings is going to be like just the perfect thing to grow uh, a nice crop of um, asper um, and then the rich amount of spores in the air just above that is a real risk for the birds um, and so we really steer clear of those sorts of things we'll often use um, uh, you know something like uh, the the um, New, new, the typical newspaper, particularly. Uh, no, I'm not going to go there and talk about the particular newspaper we use at work. But um, kitchen towels. Um, we tend to avoid things like um, sandpaper. Um, that tends to be a little bit abrasive. Um, outdoors, a concrete floor is uh, easily cleaned, blasted clean, and doesn't collect stools. Um, and often, um, you know, stout pebbles, coarse river sand, as long as they're regularly cleaned and not allowed to accumulate stools are good. We love to use 
um, you know, it'll come as no surprise to regular listeners that um, uh, F10 is an outstanding antiseptic to use in these circumstances. But um, you've got to make sure that you clean all the organic debris away to allow um, F10 to have its maximal effect on the surfaces it's exposed to. Perches. What about perches? You briefly mentioned we don't like or you don't like the Dow, the typical Dow perches. So what other options do you have? Well, I think perches represent a real opportunity for environmental enrichment. And um, if you have a Dow perch that's uh, um, horizontal, um, then birds are likely just to rest on it and they don't even grip it brendan they just bear their weight down on the on the um the first surfaces that come into contact with it and if it's the same diameter all the way around the cage the multiple perches and the bird's a little bit heavy then it's very common for us to get pressure sores which can lead to bumblefoot so we like to think of uh um you know natural perches branches that are destructible that the board the you know parrots love to chew the crap out of everything and um and having perches that uh, they can do that too and particularly if they're multiple diameters so the feet have to move through uh, uh different diameter grips and making sure they're not level so that um the birds actually have to climb up and grip will encourage the nails to wear more normally um so i think the perches are a vastly underestimated um component in the routine enclosure that a bird lives in and we love our in australia here we have a number of types of eucalypts uh often referred to as iron barks and those iron barks really live up to their name and and uh, give the birds an inordinate amount of pleasure as they work hard to chew that very tough bark off and uh, and um, explore the environment. But isn't that when the client turns around to you and says, but the dowel is covered with sandpaper and that'll wear its um, nails down and help its feet? They do say that. And, and look, the, I think I've mentioned before my little quick spiel. It's, it's a... Um, it's a common thing for birds that um, don't have a, a broad nutrition, uh, healthy nutrition, to be vitamin A deficient. When they are vitamin A deficient, the um, epithelial surfaces become dysplastic and become very smooth. And someone noticing the birds that were unhealthy had smooth feet so thought that they would, you know, create a roughened, healthier foot by putting sandpaper on a perch but of course it just doesn't work Brendan it the feet are already unhealthy because of the nutrition and the sandpaper just makes it worse um, and <clears throat> those perches that are a uniform diameter and very abrasive are, are just exactly what you don't want with a bird that's struggling with bumblefoot so um, we much prefer the uh, the the angled and twisted and different uh, different uh, uh, gradients, different diameters um, of our native trees as the perches on which the birds can rest. No sandpaper, keep it for your woodworking. That's my advice, Mark. So briefly, let's jump into other enrichment methods you have in the aviary, Mark, and Catherine goes through a few of these. So we've um, perches, what other, what other things do you put in there to keep them, keep them busy, keep them from going crazy? Well, I think the first, it's a, a, the I'm going to touch on uh, Catherine has separated enrichment and diet, but I think it's very important to quickly uh, talk about the two together because I think that rather than just 
bowls of food, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, great big, your average cockatiel will consume about eight, between eight and 12 grams of, uh, of food each morning and evening. So, um, most of the bowls that we put into those enclosures contain upwards of 100 grams of seed, which, um, or whatever food that you put in, but that allows the bird the opportunity to select the food that's um, that it likes, which is often the worst sort of food. Um, but I like the idea of not using bowls at all, of um, trying to um, uh, place the food at a number of locations around the branches, um, natural enrichment, wedging the um, the uh, the pellets and seed that create that constitute the diet into uh, cassiarina nuts or banksia nuts or even pine cones um, and not huge amounts of it uh, but wedging it in tight so the birds have to work really hard to get it out we'll often in the hospital uh, use a kitty litter tray with um, newspaper recycled newspaper kitty litter and just toss the the uh, the pellets and seed in and mix it up so the birds have to work their way through you know forage like they would in the wild um, so I think uh, a whole bunch of natural fibers and natural textures um, are really advantageous to uh, enhancing the bird's well-being I think many toys uh, and Catherine makes this point many toys, um, that you can buy at so it's sort of your general pet store. The toys that are available for birds in that location are generally mass produced, and and uh, and they often don't have the fine detail that maybe we require for a bird. So they they might be sharp or easily broken in such a way that uh, the birds can swallow them. They surprisingly, even though we know that there's trouble with uh, metals with birds, many of the toys contain metals that are going to be dangerous for the birds. Um, and so, uh, um, so I think uh, avoiding those sorts of toys and looking for more, if you are going to buy those sorts of things, then getting the, the more boutique acrylic um, puzzle type toys are going to be more helpful. There's one thing I have to shout out about, uh, uh, um, in, you know, the things that go into enclosures. There's a type of thing um, called happy huts, and I've jumped on my soapbox on other ones of our podcast to say that um, these are absolutely not to be used with birds. They uh, once a week, I have to uh, um, uh, um, deal with a bird that's in the last days of its life because it has a bees or somewhere in its uh, gizzard or um, uh, proventriculus or crop, and um, and uh, yeah, and it's caused directly by the the uh, man-made fibers in those happy huts. So don't put any of those in. Is a good tip. Well said, Mark. So. What about diet? Gee, we could do several podcasts just on diet. So give me a quick, give me some little pearls of wisdom, Mark, about your thoughts for that new client with their bird. What do you, what, what's your summary? Well, the summary is don't just feed them seeds. Um, so many of our desert-focused birds, the cockatiels and budgerigars, zebra finches, they have evolved to survive on seeds, um, but their seeds are made make up um, 
only a part of a much more complex diet in the wild. And they'll survive on them for quite a long time, but they will invariably end up with problems. And so if there's one take-home message I can get in that first consult, it is don't just feed them seed. And there are a number of species-specific formulated diets, many of them pelleted, not all of them, Um, and... uh, and depending on the species, uh, mixing those with seed or providing them as the primary source of nutrition um, is an excellent way to start. But then, um, you know, using a wide range of uh, of likely foods that the birds are going to get access to, um, uh, whether that be, uh, um, you know, fruits or leafy green vegetables, or I, I really work hard to limit those high-energy foods, though, um, starchy, oily uh, foods um, such as corn. And it's it's often the case people come into us and go, oh, I'd feed them all sorts of different foods. I feed them uh, sunflower seeds, I feed them uh, peanuts, and I feed them corn. And it's just like, mm, you know, they're all bad. Um, yes, and don't. <laughs> don't do it anymore. Yes, well said again, Mark. Water goes with food, doesn't it? So, what about water? Well, um, the key thing I say here is that um, uh, is that fresh water, unadulterated with um, any supplements or whatever, is the best way to go. Um, and so, I usually suggest that uh, a, a smaller receptacle for drinking water, a larger one for bathing, um, and even a little bit, most birds will benefit from uh, either a light mist or I often now recommend that people, you know, get a, uh, a branch with a lot of leaves on it and make sure that's all wet. Um, many, many species of birds enjoy splash bathing in those uh, wet leaves. So um, I think not only does water, you know, obviously it's critical to drink, um, but bathing and plumage health are, are maintained by um, adequate humidity in the plumage and, um, and that's maintained by regular bathing. Foraging, we've covered that. Um, Catherine <laughs> did mention um, in a separate paragraph about um, environmental enrichment by captive foraging, so that's an important one as well. And one of the last paragraphs, Mark, she, she mentioned social considerations. Would you like to expand on that a tiny bit? I think this is one of the under underrated topics at the moment because um, many birds end up uh, being hand-reared and humanised and then, you know, sold as a single um a single animal into a, a human household, and um, and really, I I think it uh, vastly underestimates the um, the 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 social nature of these animals, the flock nature of them, um, and of course the inappropriate signals that we give those humanised birds regularly lead to, lead to a whole series of undesirable behaviours that um, you know might might include screaming and and feather destructive behaviours. And so I think consideration, uh, particularly for uh, birds like budgerigars or um, cockatiels of multiple birds together, often 
I suggest um, same-sex groups uh, so that they're not having to deal with reproductive problems um, and groups of male birds if, uh, you know, the female birds uh, will still often, in the absence of males, will still have reproductive problems. Um, but um, uh, a group of them... Um, will regularly do better than one. I often talk to people about what happens for a lorikeet, for example. They're going to um, spend their first six months of life in a you know a little gang, a little flock um, uh, of young birds, and then they will mate, they will pair up with a, a, a suitable partner. Once they pair up like that, they probably are never more than about um, two or three metres away from their partner for the rest of their life. Um, and it's just about impossible for us as humans to come close to that, uh, to satisfying that social interaction um, that those birds have all the time. So I think keeping more than one of them is a good thing. Sounds like a lot of hard work, Mark, for that poor client who decide, goes out and they gets a little tiny cage with um, a bit of downward sandpaper and a budgie and then they come along to Dr. Mark and they go home with their brain full, don't they, of things that they need to change or do differently. But the good thing is, Brendan, that, that, that most people start from the point of view of wanting to do the right thing and and it is, uh, it's regularly the case that, um, that uh you know, they, they've been filled up with a whole bunch of other information, maybe from the breeder or the pet store, um, and and I find them very happy to get um, um, what seems to be a lot of common sense um, explained to them, and um, they regularly make those birds' lives much better after talking with us. Most definitely, Mark, and I think the important bit we, which we always stress is also having lots of handouts and sending them home with the client um, for them to to read and digest. And we usually, at their second visit, we have a little test for them. <laughs> if they haven't got at least 60% or so, we send them away again um, and come back again next week. So, yes. Um, so there we go. That's a, a little summary. And thanks to Catherine again for um prompting us to do that um, based on her excellent presentation on basic avian care and I think with that Mark um, we better get out of here and we will talk to you all next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Hold up. 